0: Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Lance Uwanoff, I am really excited to talk to you today. So for everyone listening, Lance Mm. is the Editor-in-Chief of LifeWire. You have spent more than three decades on the leading edge of media technology. You joined LifeWire last May 2019, Mm. but you've had previous very long tenures, both as Editor-in-Chief and Chief Correspondent slash Editor-at-Large at Mashable. And you spent a really long time at PC Magazine as well. You've been on every major network and numerous morning shows, including Live with Kelly and Ryan, The Today Show, Gordon Morning America. So basically, Lance, when anyone needs an expert on tech, they call you.
1: Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> I'm always happy when they do.
0: Yes. Well, you're very, very good at it. And I'm really happy to have you on leave Your Mark today because I've been following your career for a very long time, ever since back in the day in 2009, my DQ PR Girl days, where I would follow your tweets all the time. And of course, Mashable was a must read. And I actually was in Mashable a few times myself. So when I came to Birdie to consult and I saw you in the office, I was like, I was a little starstruck. I was like, that's Lance. (laughs) (laughs) I must talk to Lance. So I'm really excited. And of course, we're going to get into all of your later on amazing accomplishments. But I want people to really understand who you are, because this is Leave Your Mark which Mm -hmm. is career advice. So really, it's about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Right. So tech was pretty limited when you were a kid. I would imagine we're in similar age. Were you always into sort of how things worked?
1: I think uh, I watched my father a lot. My father's a tinkerer. And I still remember this There was a piece of luggage that had something, maybe it had like a record player or something, but he basically gutted it and built a budget computer inside of it. I still don't know how it worked, but it helped do our budget. And, you know, he had gone to school for engineering. He was very, very smart. And I would watch him. And I really was not that person, though. I was not a tinkerer, but something must have rubbed off on me. And I became more interested in sort of the inner workings of things, and technology in particular, because at that time, you know, this is the seventies. Things were just starting to percolate in the tech area. And I was kind of interested. And we did have a Commodore computer and I was using it. And I did have like a little computer, a Texas instrument computer that recorded programs on cassette tape. I taught myself basic. I wrote a program one summer and the program was so stupid. It was so small. It was just, I made birds fly across the screen. <laughs> That was, that was it. And it took so long to do it. But I had this just this fascination with it that really didn't go away. I, I went into the math lab where the, the only computer in school existed and played a game that was all text. And uh, I just – every stage of my life, especially my early life, I would turn a corner and run into a computer. That's how it felt. Even once I started to work and before, actually a little before I started to work because I was pretty directed. I did know I wanted to be a journalist from – Probably the time I was 15, I was pretty set on it. And uh, when I did my early internships at a local newspaper out on Long Island, one of the things they did was they brought in a Mac computer. And I was just like, oh, so this is like 1985, maybe, something like that. And I was just like, wow, hey, uh, okay. And they left me with it. My job at that newspaper was layout. I was the paste-up artist. Um, I had interned and then I was the paste-up artist and I was still in college and I taught myself how to use the computer and how to do it. There was no sense in my head that there was a career in tech media. Tech media barely existed. But you knew that. I didn't know I wanted to be in tech media. I just knew that I wanted to be a journalist. Oh, and I also liked technology. But I did not put the two together. I just kept – when I went – my first – my newspaper job – Again, it was a situation where I went in, they had the old computers, they were DAC computers, so it was eight-inch floppy drives that you changed every night.
0: I don't think people who are <laughs> listening quite understand how far we have come.
1: Since oh, that. yeah. Well, that's the weird thing about my career. I feel like, for whatever reason, I was witnessed all the major changes in media. Like, I was right there watching them or participating in them. You know, that newspaper... They're like, oh, we're um, switching over to the Mac. Well, I happened to have just trained myself on the Mac at this thing. So I redesigned the newspaper on the Mac for them and I knew how to use it. When I went to McGraw-Hill, it was the same thing. It was a company that was run on all DOS computers. And as a production editor, I would look for ways to speed up the process, basically, with technology. And there was Skunk Works, a guy with a room full of Macs who wanted everybody to get on them. But nobody, everybody thought he was insane. Nobody wanted to do it.
0: So you are definitely a self-starter. You're definitely someone who looks for things to do.
1: Well, yeah, I have very... um, I'm not one of those people who says, ask forgiveness later. You know, I'm not really that person. I'm more like, I will be very forceful about my ideas. You will hear them. You will hear me explain them. And I tend to nudge on them. I push.
0: And have you always had the confidence to be that way? Like even, you know, when you were starting out in your career?
1: No. I've told this story. I've even written about it. Um When I went to PC Mag in 1991, that was my first round with them. It was my first also time where I realized there was a tech journalism thing.
0: That's a good thing you figured that out. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was an accident, really. But when I got there, what I realized was there was a place full of really smart people, really, really smart people. And like... Theater in chief just seemed to know everything, and everybody seemed to know everything. And so for about six months, I thought I was the stupidest person there. It was very overwhelming and very upsetting because I didn't feel like I knew anything. I didn't know how they learned so much about technology, how they learned so much about the companies involved in it. I didn't know how you got from point A to point B.
0: But isn't that classic imposter syndrome, don't you think, with a new job? I feel like that always happens in the first like six months of a new job.
1: Well- I came to believe that it is okay to feel like an idiot. If you take a job and there is no challenge to it, you've taken the wrong job.
0: I believe that too.
1: And so I had really taken a job that was going to challenge me in every way because while I knew how to write and while I knew something about computers, and actually I knew mostly about Macs and nothing about PCs, interestingly enough, very little. I believed I had the fundamental skills to do it But it was also a massive leap of faith. I knew nothing, very little about this magazine, very little about this space. And everybody else was like, bang, 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 bang. But I also got thrown some really difficult projects early on. And you know, that's a moment of choice, right? In a job. Somebody hands you a task and you can either crumple and say, I cannot do this. Or you can just be like, okay, (laughs) I guess I will just do this. And then you're doing it. And it's a monumental task. And while you're doing it, somewhere two-thirds along the way, you realize that you've become some new muscles developed, you're able to do it more easily, and you've learned something big about a bunch of different things. But it was always that moment where the task is in front of you, and you have to make that choice. And I guess for me, even though, and I will tell people this, and I've always said it about, I'm fundamentally lazy person.
0: No, I don't believe
1: it. I know it's hard for people to believe, but there is a a core of me that is lazy. So there's always that moment where when faced with a task where my head is going, no. But I'm also matched with being very ambitious, strangely enough. Sounds like an
0: oxymoron, though.
1: I know. I know. I didn't know I had ambition when I was young, but it's very clear I did. And that's one of the things that has driven me, the desire to have control, not power. Mm -hmm. I don't care about power.
0: Really though?
1: Not really. I don't. It's more about my wife calls me a control freak. I tend to take over tasks because I think I see the right way. And in a job, I will see a bunch of different things and I will believe I know the right way to do it. But without control, I can't do anything about it. The power is sort of, it's a part of having it in that you maybe have the right to say, this is the way it should be. But I don't like to control people. That's not what I'm about. I'm not like, oh, I made them do this thing. Not at all. So you're not a micromanager. No, I'm about I'm about results. A big part of my career has been managing. I was a manager of online teams, I was a manager of bigger teams. I when I was editor-in-chief of both of actually now three, but mainly the two, PC Mag and Mashable, I managed massive teams. And I really cherished the idea of mentoring these people, growing them into something, and also finding ways to execute on the tasks that I believed were important and that sometimes the company believed was important. And then we could all share in it. We could all be happy about it. But also, if it went wrong, it was always my fault.
0: Yeah. The buck stops with you for sure. Right. What's the biggest difference in how you cover tech now in your new position than back then? Like, do you see a difference in the way that you actually sort of direct coverage or do you feel like it's just slowly evolved to where it is today?
1: Well, LifeWire is super different. LifeWire is super different than any place I've been before because of its um, its core focus on evergreen content. I call myself a unicorn here because I'm, I'm the person who is completely different from everyone else. And that's not... That's not boasting. That's literally a difference. I am a person who comes from a strong, like pure tech editorial background. And a lot of the content we create, which is the best evergreen content on the web, is created by experts around the country all around the world who may not be um, journalists. And evergreen content doesn't work on a tight schedule. It works on sort of a long factory-like production schedule. It's very different. Me, I tend to be about the here and now. I've been that way for a very long time. Uh, So when I covered tech in the early 90s, because I was tied to a print magazine, the cadence was super different. Mm -hmm. There was this long stretch of project and project management. One example would be um, the top 75 graphics cards. You Imagine there were 75 different graphics cards in, in the early 90s. And so we'd make a massive project to collect them and for how are we going to test them and all of that planning would happen and that would take weeks and then there'd be the writing and then there'd be the editing and then there'd be the production and then it would go to to print and then a couple months later we see the article so there was this this roller coaster of productivity now i will say that the way i ended up doing it when I was at PCMag, I would look around and there were some editors who would do these projects and then disappear for two weeks. Like they go into hiding almost.
0: Wait, are and they working on it or are they just what?
1: And just be like, I don't have anything to do. So they just hide out. <laughs> I mean, I could tell what was happening. And so uh, I uh, I ended up with two teams. So then I was never not busy. I was always sort of going from one project to the next, constant I guess I preferred it that way because I didn't know how really how to stop. And that actually helped prepare me for the online world, which was just starting to happen in my first tenure at PCMag. So that's probably where the way I work now was sort of formed in that I got this real-time sense and got excited about real-time reaction to whatever we were doing. Putting stuff online was completely different than putting into print. I'd never worked on a daily newspaper, so I didn't have that sense. I'd only worked on weekly newspapers sure. and, and magazines, and magazines were either monthly or PC Mag was twice a month. But that still meant your feedback was really a distance from the work you were doing, but online was immediate. And so everything that I did going forward with the tech coverage space became more and more immediate. You know, when you started following me in 2009, it was when I was really starting to go crazy with Twitter, mm-hmm. which fed the dopamine drip of real-time reaction to whatever I was saying regarding the tech space. Oh,
0: I like that, the dopamine drip. That's so well said. But did you ever feel back then, or even now, like, I mean, I would imagine there's this constant pressure, like, you need to know everything that's happening all the time, every minute of the day.
1: Yeah. I used to say that uh, my old editor-in-chief at PCMag, Michael Miller, um, and Bill Gates, I would say this about him too, had tremendous bandwidth. You know, everybody knew that Bill Gates was like one of the smartest people in the world. But Michael Miller, who knew Bill Gates definitely at that time, and I would talk to him and I realized he knew everything about everything in the tech space, everything. And I'm like, how? And all I could describe it is bandwidth, like where you put all that information. And
0: where does he put it?
1: It's, giant a of, it's a matter of intellect, you know, and that, look, I consider myself of average intellect. So I worked twice as hard to know half as much as he did. And- I also learned as I got older that you can't possibly know everything and you can't possibly cover everything. And also that's not necessarily helpful to your audience. I've become more specific in my coverage as I've gotten older because I've learned about what the audience actually wants to know about. But I've also been smart enough to know when there's something that the audience doesn't know about that they probably should.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that just comes from experience. So I don't try and cover everything. Part of my career shift in the last 20 years has been more into the columnist space. And that meant looking at things a little bit differently and putting my own personal spin on things. And and that also meant I'm cherry picking topics. Yesterday, I wrote about Apple and iCloud because I had a specific reaction to this idea that iCloud wasn't encrypted, except it is encrypted. So it was basically my job. You'll find a lot of what I write is sort of a counter to misinformation. I speak to consumers. I'm uh, probably a centrist. I try and be fair, but I also try and offer clarity when I think a lot of people are so wound up that they don't actually clarify anything. They just wind more people up. (laughs) That's true. That's not really what I'm here to do.
0: You are definitely considered a thought leader in the space though. Do you ever feel like especially with your social presence? Like, do you ever feel
1: that it's all a big burden? Uh, sure. Um, hundred <laughs> percent, there are times where I, I literally think I'm taking a break from everything. I mean, because you get to a certain age and you start to see that time is moving super fast. You don't get a lot of different acts in your life. Um, younger people switch jobs very quickly and they kind of don't have a sense of that. But it's hard for me to sometimes think back to how long ago I was working as a professional and how different the world was and how different I was. But now I'm at a place where I'm older than most of my peers. I know I have more experience, but I also know that I'm, I'm at a different place. And so sometimes I'm just tired. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, stop. And other times I'm super excited. You know, like I still have that, like, uh, you know, where I can't write fast enough to get the thought out. Right. And sometimes I'm having a great time on Twitter, where I'm engaging and I'm, you know, I have a super specific personality on Twitter, and I I'm just hitting it and I'm having fun and I'm surprised about the response and and then there are other times where I'm like, how am I supposed to feed all these pipes? Why did I get on TikTok? What was I thinking? You know? And I'm like, you know what? It comes when it comes. I try and like calm myself down and go yeah. just. You'll get to things when you get to things. You're going to tweet because you want to tweet and try not to stress about it too much. So is Twitter your
0: number one platform?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's where I have the biggest audience. You but know. also
0: your favorite.
1: I think it is my favorite because it's how I think. You know, I was the kid in class who during class would say something funny and almost like I couldn't stop myself. Like disruptive? I, well, not in a bad way, but if the teacher <laughs> said something or something happened, I would have a quip and everybody would laugh. And I didn't really have a lot of control, of it just would happen. For me, Twitter is a lot like that. Like I see something and I have an instantaneous reaction. My first reaction, my first thought is usually my best thought. Yes. And there aren't a lot of tweets where I spend a lot of time working on them. Most of them are pretty fast, even though I'm so careful, I'm not like, you know, stepping on a landmine. That's never my intention. But my personality is so consistent in that way, it usually works fine. And I see the little bit of engagement and I've got that little audience and I'm very happy about it. It's a good platform to sort of, to engage, to learn, get information, share information. I still believe that there's true value in it. I
0: I absolutely do.
1: I mean, I understand the issues and I'm very upset when I see people I've never really understood people who attack other people. You know, as somebody who was bullied as a child, it's just really upsetting. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, yes. Um, It's so bizarre that the thing I thought was going to make everything so much better has empowered more people to do the the worst possible thing. I'm so surprised by that because I never envisioned it would be that way. But I also think that there's a much bigger space on Twitter that's positive. I think people sometimes get fixated on the negative. Mm-hmm. And I know it's a different world for women on Twitter. I've seen that in most spaces. It is. I've seen that my whole career and I get that, but I still think there's power and value in it. Um, and I wouldn't be on it otherwise.
0: I totally agree. I actually have a very positive experience on Twitter personally. So I think it's also who you surround yourself with and also the content that you put out. I mean, you're very mm-hmm. mindful. Like you say, I am as well but I am off the cuff also. I have that intuitive sort of knack to know what I want to talk about or not. But if people want to try and build their own industry credibility like you have, what do you think are some things that they should do off the bat to do that? Because I think, you know, when I was really taking a deep dive into your background, you know, you've had these very prestigious roles, but I, I almost feel like your personal brand is as strong, if not stronger than wherever you've worked. It's not just like, Your job makes you who you are. Like you are who you are, and then you happen to work at these places. So, what would you advise someone who wants to really be
1: a leader in their space? Well, I tell people the great thing about the time we live in now is that there are no gates, there are no barriers. You have a message, you want to get out there, you can do it, and you have a lot of different platforms to do it. But it does take consistency, it does take accuracy, it takes quality, it takes time. Uh, I didn't set out with the intention of building a personal brand. It happened almost accidentally. It was me realizing what was happening along the way and then kind of taking more physical control of it. And that did mean, you know, I started to research like, what's the cadence for the amount of time, you know, how often you tweet and how do I fill my Twitter feed with things that are adding to what I do on the tech space. And I read it and I looked at other people. I'm very good at modeling. Mm-hmm. It's something I learned in college, modeling behavior to help me be more outgoing mm-hmm. because I was a little bit, you know, I was not an extrovert, I would say. I was somebody who was afraid to stand up in front of people and speak and I didn't quite know how to channel the ideas and humor I had. So I had to look at other people to learn and do what they did. That's a great way to learn. And so that's what I did on Twitter. So, you know, you have a Twitter account. You have to treat it almost, if you're really trying to build a brand and visibility, you have to treat it like a job. You know, I get up in the morning and the first thing I do is look at the newsfeed and then tweet. Same. Literally the first. So I'm up at 5.30 in the morning. Same. And <laughs> Yeah. And then I go work out. And then I not the same (laughs) (laughs) I'm a super creature of habit. I do the same things almost every single day.
0: Same lunch, same everything?
1: I bring in my lunch every day. I bring in my breakfast every day. I like that. I like again, that's about control. Except
0: Thursday's here when we have breakfast.
1: Well, it's taken me a while to learn that and not bring in my breakfast.
0: (laughs) Taking you a
1: while because i'll forget oh, i'll have uh, because I Lance,
0: you said you're good at retention
1: what i'm good it? at retention but it goes across purposes with habit fine habit is a series of steps i do and i do them almost autonomously in the morning in any case doing twitter and doing anything that you do in the digital space like a job is how basically you grow and it doesn't really matter the platform i was just watching a video um a friend of mine shira lazar had an interview with a TikTok influencer and she was talking about this exact topic. And it was interesting because it was all the same. It was all the same about how often you post, how consistent, how good the quality should be and the topics. And again, for brand building, your brand is not necessarily you. Your brand is the topic that you live around and you own. Hmm. I'm known as a tech journalist or tech expert. And by the way, I learned 100% that I had actually grown my personal brand to that level when I lost my job at Mashable. So it was a period of time where I was out on my own. And what happened is very quickly right after that, I was a little bit upset. I was a little bit, you know, kind of not sure what to do. And I remember I had a meeting with Apple and I was going to cancel the meeting. It was an important product meeting, but I was like, I said to them, I don't have any place to put this story. I said, you know what? I can do because I've already been doing a little. I, I put it on medium. I go, but he goes, great, come do the story. So I did that story and immediately it did great traffic on medium. And very shortly after that, I was getting my usual producer TV calls. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not working anywhere. What well, we'll just put you as tech expert? And so I continued to do all the TV, all the writing, and I added things and again, so it was a year and a half of me kind of spent building um, Lance Inc., as I called it. Mm-hmm. And it was YouTube videos. I had a podcast. I was doing a bunch of different things. Now I'm not saying any of those things made me rich, not by any stretch, but they kept me present, plugged in, connected. People thought I was busier than ever. and Maybe I was. I don't know.
0: But I think to your point,
1: your name you held your own. It's, well, right. It's you. It didn't, it's not where you were. Right. I realized that people already knew who I was and it didn't matter where I was working anymore. It just mattered that they were connecting with me. And by extension, the audience I had with, you know, online, Twitter, all of those things. And of course, television in particular, Live with Kelly and Brian has been, you know, I've been doing that show for seven years. And that's been a, a significant part of helping me go to that next level.
0: I think it's really inspiring. And I think that the lesson that everyone needs to understand is your name has to mean something without where you work as like the ends. You know, you're not Lance from LifeWire. You're
1: Lance. Right. It's really your reputation. Absolutely. Right? You know, how can people describe you in a sentence? It's like you have to have some sort of description that aligns with you. And it is not that your whole being is connected to some third party brand.
0: What do you think your greatest skill is? Like number one skill. And don't tell me writing. (laughs) Or maybe it is. But I don't think it is actually.
1: Uh, Lately, I've been thinking that it might be comprehension. Hmm. So I remembered that when I was in grade school, I read the most books of any kid. I became like competitive about it. And there was a flower pot on the wall that had like a construction paper flower pot. And every time he read a book, he got a flower in it. Yeah. So I just wanted the most flowers. I was reading most books. But what they told my parents at the time was that his comprehension level very high. And it meant whatever I read, I understood. When I either read things or write things down, I truly understand them. What that is translated into is... If you ever see me on television, I'm not talking off handwritten notes. I may be holding a piece of paper, but that's more like a security blanket. I never glance at the paper. What I'm doing is I'm talking extemporaneously about the products, and I'm talking quickly and going through them. And it's all out of my head.
0: Because you understand it.
1: Right. I not only have memorized some of the key points, but I have an understanding of these things. And when I go on television and I'm the talking head expert on one of the networks, it's the same thing. I'm talking from a place of understanding, not memorization. You know, memorization is for facts, but there's always the part about, do you actually understand what you're talking about? Same way I write. So that I think may be my greatest skill because I was trying to figure out if you know I'm not the necessarily I'm definitely not the greatest writer, I'm not the greatest artist, and I, none of these things I am, but that comprehension part puts me in slightly different space.
0: Is there anything anyone can do to be better at comprehension? Because I think that's really a skill that kind of everyone needs no matter what they do.
1: Um, I don't know if it came from so much reading. You know, reading was literally my hobby as a child. Reading and watching TV. Those are my two things. And uh, it's about being present and actually listening.
0: I think that's very wise.
1: When you talk to people or they're explaining something to you, it can be very easy to zone out or to start making a shopping list in your head.
0: (laughs) True. You know, it,
1: it it is about focusing. And sometimes what I do with people, especially when I have difficulty understanding, because maybe it's a complex topic. I will repeat it back to them as I understand it. They've just told me something rather complex and it's lots of bits and pieces. And I'll say, so, and I go, da, 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 And what I'm hoping here is that's exactly right. Or that's a good way to put it. Right? Then I know that I've actually consumed it and understood it. And I can probably talk about it. It's
0: great. I think that's great. Have you ever failed?
1: Well, I consider losing my job at Mashable a sort of failure. I've never been out of work. I've been working since I was like thirteen. I've never been out of a job. I've always worked, 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 and I've never been fired. It wasn't. I was a layoff, you know, because they laid off seventy people when they were sold. But it was still the closest I ever felt to failure.
0: I don't think that's failure, though. I think that's just closing one door, opening another.
1: Well, I didn't at the time. Of it was course. hard for me to see it that way. Of course. And it was a scary place based on my age. There were a lot of factors there that scared me. But full on failure? No. I've had things happen that have been bad or embarrassing or frustrating. But yeah.
0: Good. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given by a mentor, by a boss?
1: whomever. I don't know if I've ever been given a single piece of advice, but I've had a couple of examples that I've carried with me forever. Um, My first boss out of college showed me how little I knew about writing very quickly, but in a, I thought a really gentle and smart way, just sat me down with my text and went through it with a red pen. And I took copious notes about everything. Really, it hurt. It was like to realize a lot of people come out of college and like, well, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. I got it. And I did that, and then I realized, "Oh my god, I'm a terrible writer. I'm a ter-. But I I kept every note that I wrote down about what I had done. I mean, I made some really dumb mistakes, but I never forgot that. I never forgot that how important it is to have somebody to not just fix stuff and ignore you, but to actually sit you down and show you the way. And that was really important to me. And then the other thing was that You got to help others. I had somebody who I did something, basically uh, wrote a story about his son, but noticed that he was uh, a guy who worked at McGraw Hill and they just kept the paper. And then when I was looking for a job, I just called him and he remembered me because I written the story. He told me to come in and he showed me a big sheet of jobs and said, circle what you're interested in and I'll get you interviews. Basically, he made my career. Without him, I wouldn't have had a magazine career. And it turned out he had been doing this for me. This is what he did. He would just, he would help people. And so I've always tried to do the exact same thing. I've always tried to, anybody who needs a hand, I'm the person who gives the best recommendations and references. I will never say no to somebody who's looking for advice, guidance, or a leg up. That's great.
0: Do you have something on your bucket list for the future that you're like one day you would love to do? Mm. Do you want to have like a self-fulfled prophecy right now on Leave Your Mark?
1: (laughs) You know, I think the thing that I regret right now the most is that I've never written a book. Mm. And I've really tried to figure it out. I have approached it many times. I've been writing my whole life. I've written many books worth of content, but never a book. I've been in books, but never written one. And I've tried to start. I've written outlines. I've talked to book agents. I've done all of that and I haven't quite. And I'm torn between whether it's me just, you know, seeing it as too high a mountain to scale or understanding I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. I don't know. But it is kind of something where I think it goes back to that idea of a personal brand. It's the thing that I believe would truly set me free. Like that I would be completely the lance brand if I wrote a book, but I don't know what to write. I've had many ideas, but nothing quite sticks. nothing sounds like it's going to be and I have friends who have written books, multiple books, and I've talked to them I've asked them how it works, how much you write, and all of I've asked them everything to understand it, and so now I understand the process so it's not like there's not enough time. I've read many stories about people, you know, writing books at my age. It's not that. It's more about having the thing and then committing to it, being very committed to it. You have to be really committed to it.
0: Well, from experience, once they give you that contract, you are committed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really easy way to buckle down. What motivates you on a daily basis?
1: Sometimes I think it's my wife. That's that, nice. Well. She's, Lance, go to work. She's the most important person in my life. and That's so nice. And I feel like having a good life with her, being able to enjoy time with her, I get that out of work. You know, in order to like have a life that we can have a good time and that we can spend, you know, I think I've definitely learned more about that over the last couple of years is my lifestyle's changed a little bit with, you know, when I was out of work and doing my own thing. but. I feel like she motivates me, my children, they motivate me too, but they're sort of, you know, they're the grown-ups, they're starting to like try and build their own lives, but she's my partner and so that motivates me and then the other thing that motivates me is that feeling of accomplishment. There are moments when I write something and I'm like, yeah, that makes me happy. That's exactly what I wanted or I get the response I was looking for. And sometimes it's Drawings, I I draw and sometimes it's drawing something. I look and I go, yeah, I like that. That made me happy. You know, I feel really good drawing it and I felt good afterwards. So I guess that motivates me. And there's still that ambition. It's not dead, you know. I know, I
0: wouldn't think it would be.
1: No, but it's certain, you know, you always wonder like what people can accomplish at different phases in their lives. And some people have said to me, and I believe this is true, I didn't expect to be in this place at this age. And so I still have that ambition. I still, when I'm presented with a problem, I'm still kind of agitated about it and want to do something. So I think that drives me too, is that I'm not done building things. I'm not done accomplishing stuff. So I think that's part of it as well.
0: How do you think you'll ultimately leave your mark?
1: Oh, I have actually thought about that. And I try and, you know, I'm such a tiny, tiny speck in this whole universe. And I'm very obsessed with... Um, I grew up, I'm, I love movies, I love pop culture, I love celebrities, I'm fascinated by them. I always remember a documentary about fame and like Charlie Chaplin was a, one of the first globally famous people. It was a phenomenon that hadn't really existed before. And so all of that really interests me because in my neighborhood, I'm a micro mini celebrity. Like I'm really- Where like, are you
0: from? Where do you live?
1: Well, I live on Long Island. I grew up in New York and Colorado. So I've been back and forth a little bit. But um, I'm definitely like in this very tiny community. I'm this weird person who's been on TV. Um, (laughs) But then outside that, I'm really – I'm like nobody would know who I am. I'm like I'm very – you know, I'm not known. And so I'm like, what would my obituary be like? What would they say? Well, I guess they would say tech media guy maybe. uh, Like I can't even fathom it like what they would say. And then what I realize is that probably what would be smarter is to focus on how I can make the world a better place, right? Like what I can do in whatever time I have left, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years.
0: Hopefully more than that.
1: Well, I'll be pretty old in 30. So uh, <laughs> I might be around the time, But but say I have more time. You just realize that what am I doing to actually help? What am I actually doing to make this world a better place? So, you know, I'm going to obviously keep doing what I'm doing, but I'm hoping that over time, I'll spend more time doing things that matter for the world, you know, that actually help people and make this place a world a better place to live in, hopefully.
0: Well, oh, that's a great sentiment. Lance, it's such a pleasure to talk to you and hear your story. You've had an incredible career and you continue to do so. So thank you so much for being ah, on Leave Your Mark. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalict.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalictxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalict. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.